A very, very faintly Christmas-themed tale of vice and villainy, cronyism and corruption. Welcome to the 28th of December, little mini-bonus cell cast for patrons, which will be going out more generally a month later. Anyway, it's time for a Christmas tale of villainy and corruption. There are all kinds of rumours about embezzlement and theft at a state bank, but the directors swear blind that all is absolutely fine. The chief teller is clearly rich beyond his means and his wife is never seen but that she is dripping with diamonds, but no one sees fit to inquire further. Eventually, when it turns out that the bank has been plundered into near bankruptcy, there's an inquiry, but the chief director of the bank, who incidentally is a close crony of the ruler, is put in charge of the investigating commission. And this is despite the eyewitness account of his removing bullion from the bank's vaults as the scandal breaks. Lo and behold, all the blame is placed on the teller and sundry other small fry while the directors go scot-free. So, does this sound like just another tale of modern Russia? It's actually from the 18th century. Catherine the Great established the State Loan Bank in St Petersburg in 1786, and in many ways this was a sop to the grumbling aristocracy with whom she was often in contention. The idea was that this would create a structure that would give them access to credit at reasonable rates so that they could continue to maintain and develop their estates and it was an opportunity that was then later extended to the urban nobility. She initially announced that she was endowing it with 22 million rubles for loans to the rural nobility and 11 million for the urban, and that loans were to be paid off in 20 to 22 years or so at 3 to 5% interest, non-compounding. Well, look, beware the promises of empresses and the greed of government institutions for that matter. She didn't actually endow it in full, and the government took to using its capital as collateral for its own loans. So aristocrats were still able to get loans, but it wasn't that easy, and it often took contacts or, well, something more. Now, if you were someone like Count General Suvorov, for example, you could get the Empress to make sure you got a loan of 250,000 rubles from the loan bank, and he did. However, if you were unlucky enough not to be one of the greatest military commanders in Russian history, well then, maybe you need something else. And this was, to be blunt, a market opportunity. And no one filled it quite like collegiate assessor, that's a kind of middling rank state official, Kelberg, the chief teller of the bank. Get him on side and your loan may well go through. And how do you get him on side? Well, no one quite seemed able to explain just how come his wife, Anna, became one of the richest women and most active diamond traders in St. Petersburg. When, for example, Anna Kelberg, on the conclusion of the latest Russo-Swedish War in 1790, proposed to the Empress's valet that he might want to arrange for a fantastically expensive diamond-encrusted sword to be bought by the state as one of the gifts that Catherine could bestow upon her generals. Even that eventually aroused sufficient concern that Catherine herself ordered an audit of the bank. And this was entrusted to one of her former favourites, and yes, that does mean lovers, 
Count Piotr Zawadowski, who was also chief director of the bank, and he reported back that an audit had found that all was well. The trouble was that no audit was actually carried out. It took five years before rumours again began circulating about the solvency of the bank, in part, and here's the Christmas hook, because of particular extravagance of the Kilbergs in year-end festivities. And this actually prompted the Kilbergs to flee, but not far enough or fast enough, and they were apprehended by men working for Lieutenant General Arkharov, the Governor-General of St. Petersburg. And at that point, the bank was properly audited and, surprise, surprise, in envelopes that were meant to contain depositors' cash, they found bundles of blank paper for a value of 590,000 rubles. Now, how much is that? Well, the annual sole tax paid by all peasants was one rouble per peasant. This is quite a bit of money. And worst of all, there was a lot more missing at that. Now, the Kelberg's guilt seemed clear. But, you know, how had the chief teller managed to get away with this for years? And how had he managed to do so without the directors apparently knowing anything? So, Catherine appointed a commission of inquiry, including such figures as Gavrila Derjavin, who was president of the Commerce Collegium, and it has to be said, a serial author of, in my opinion, really excruciatingly tacky poems celebrating Catherine's glories from every angle. Now, one day Derjavin was approached by Count Tersky, the, again, what a wonderful title this is, the General Reketmeister. The General Racketmeister. Anyway, this is the official who handles petitions and complaints to the Crown. And he whispered to him that he had heard that when the loss of the bank's deposits was revealed, Count Zavadovsky, the same director who had assured Catherine that all was well, secretly spirited two chests to his house that night, one packed with silver and the other with gold. Now, Derjavin had no doubt at all that the Empress had also heard this tale. But whom did she put in charge of the commission to investigate? Her old flame, Pyotr Zavadovsky. So what happened? Well, Zavadovsky blocked Derjavin from interrogating the Kilbergs properly. Along with his crony, Arkharov, he allowed all the other bigwigs in the bank to get away with presenting excuses and alibis and forced Derjavin, whenever he wanted to pose questions, I mean, he wanted to interrogate them, but when he wanted to pose questions, he had to ask these witness suspects on paper and allow them to reply in kind. So, surprisingly enough, their, their, their replies all seemed mysteriously um, complimentary with each other. Nevertheless, some dirt did get uncovered. Uh, Zavadovsky, for example, it emerged that he had begun taking his salary not in the paper rubles that was meant to be the case, but in gold and silver rubles. Now, the reason this made a difference is because in, although in theory a ruble is a ruble is a ruble, or was anyway, in fact, the real rate of the paper ruble was substantially less. So in effect, he basically, in that respect, dramatically increased his salary. The directors took silver from depositors, and again, they paid out in devalued paper notes, but to the same face value. They paid out loans in copper coins, and then claimed they'd actually paid silver coins. And, as above, so below, everyone in the bank took to working some scams and schemes of their own. A favoured one, for example, was to turn away a particularly desperate would-be borrower 
but then to direct them to a merchant who would charge two or three times as much interest and then, of course, pay the bank official a finder's fee. So the whole thing was filthy corrupt from top to bottom. Now, there was a limit to what Derjavin himself could do because he found himself pretty much alone on the commission of actually trying to find out what was going on. And to be blunt, there was also a limit to how far he was actually willing to push it because, look, the fact that Catherine had put Zavadovsky in charge of this commission was a pretty strong signal that she was not willing to sacrifice her, her old beau. Catherine herself interviewed Zavadovsky about this business of the chests, and he claimed that they had contained, it was actually his own property, his own gold and silver, that he had put in the bank storerooms for safekeeping. And the Empress seemed willing to let him off the hook. Only the Kelbergs and the small fry were convicted, and the, although the final approval of the verdict was delayed, when Catherine died, her successor, Paul I, and it has to be said, possessed of a less than especially inquiring mind, signed off on it in December 1796. Sadly, for my purposes, just a week too early for this to be yet another Christmas Day connection. Kelberg was tied out in a public square for three days, a sign around his neck reading Thief of the State Treasury, and then he was stripped of all his rank. He and his wife were condemned to hard labour exile in Siberia. But in some ways, one could argue that they actually had it relatively likely, perhaps precisely because they were in the service aristocracy. Others who were convicted were branded, were, had all their property confiscated, were whipped, or in some cases had their nostrils clipped as a sort of permanent physical mark of their guilt. And Zavadovsky, well, he dodged that bullet, but in 1799, after all, when the Krisha, the roof, the protection provided by Catherine was no longer active, it came to light that he'd been involved in yet another bribe scandal. So he was dismissed from state service, albeit without any other punishment and still as rich as you'd like. But anyway, then under Alexander I, he later returned to public service as a senator and indeed the, eventually the Minister of Public Education. So institutional embezzlement of state funds, a toxic culture of corruption that spreads from the top to the bottom, distortion of the investigatory process by favourites of the boss, a culture of scapegoating the lesser criminals to protect the greater ones. Not so exclusively Russian to be sure, but not so modern either. Happy Christmas. Не скоро я к нему вернусь обратно. Ты только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ правда, товарищ правда.